Center Church, glad to be with you again for another week as we continue in our series on the parables of Jesus. And this series will continue through the calendar year. I found it to be a source of much needed encouragement and clarity uh, in what has been for everyone a very a very strange and difficult year. So I've certainly benefited from time. Um, much time spent in these parables, and I hope they've been useful to you as well. We're taking this week another pass at the rich man and Lazarus, and um, we we very well will have even one more message that considers this parable from, again, yet another angle, which will happen the week following Thanksgiving weekend. And, and that weekend, even though some of you um, maybe many, in fact, will be gathering. Uh, there won't be um, there won't be an installment proper of of a message in the podcast. So we'll certainly have time together in community. Um, many will, but those who who choose to, but uh, there won't be a message to accompany that this upcoming week. So here we are again with the rich man and Lazarus. Last week, we as we have been doing throughout the series. Um, the parables is that each parable is so enormous. We have chosen to take very a very specific approach to the parables, and um, as now we're 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 wanting to do. Last week we began um, with the rich man and Lazarus, and and reflected on a few weaker readings of the text. Primarily, we offered a critique of an overly literal or wooden reading concerning the afterlife. Uh, as far as I. I have seen an incredibly immature approach to the parable and, and one that strikes me as unreflective. But then we critiqued the, the, the pendulum effect that sometimes happens in response to this, which is, um, to, which is that some of us, in, in an attempt to avoid this obvious misreading that ignores the nuance and metaphor of the parable, we jettison all that the parable has to say about eschatology and the afterlife. So we talked through that weaker reading and then we discussed uh, for the majority of the message last week the ethical imperative that this parable offers concerning um, a need, a requirement really, to reject overconsumption. And the ethical imperative this parable gives us to embrace our role as altruistic representatives of God. And so that was that was our focus last week as we dealt with the parable um, up to the point of the death of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, this week, um, I hope to achieve a shorter message for you, which is uh, really um, three interlocking meditations concerning the eschatology of imminence. And and for that reason, I I want to I I hope these intentionally abbreviated meditations serve as a platform for reflection and prayer and conversation in your center communities. 
So uh, with that, what on earth is the eschatology of imminence anyway? Um, eschatology coming from the Greek word eschaton, which means um, end times, end things. The eschatology of imminence usually uh, carries with it two components at least. One is, or two points of emphasis. One is the imminent coming judgment, and the other is the hope of the imminent fulfillment of the kingdom of God, um, which is signaled through the return of Jesus. So the eschatology of imminence is very tricky um, and, and is badly confused by many people, I think, who misunderstand some of the um, ancient, um, some of the church fathers on this and, and some of the ancient construals really of what um, of, of how eschatology was understood in Second Temple Judaism, which is somewhat diverse and complex. But I want to I want to flesh this out for ju- truly a, just a moment because I think it lays the groundwork for um, the three meditations that we have. So the major strands within Second Temple Judaism construed faith and divine sovereignty in such a way that placed all eschatological authority in the hands of God. So to understand the eschatology of imminence and to avoid the many traps that people um, now in various, I think, um, in various denominations, some of the traps that are fallen into here, to, to avoid those traps, it's important to understand that Second Temple Judaism framed divine sovereignty in such a way that all of the concern about the end times, which is to say when when will the end of the age happen? When will the new kingdom be fully realized? All of that eschatological authority was truly um, understood to be something that God alone possessed. I mean, this is where you see Jesus saying things like only God the Father knows the the, the day and the hour um, at, at which point so many theologians engage in this exercise in missing the point, um, reading reading Jesus with no literary awareness. I don't I don't tend to think much about this as some deep commentary on the Trinity. Rather, I think Jesus is making an observation about who is in control of the unfolding of of, of time and and the direction of creation, and that is God alone. This is to say that in the ancient world, eschatology was valued in that one's beliefs in a coming judgment, in the kingdom coming, in an imminent end to the present age, was a vital driver in one's present action and how a follower of Christ and how an ancient Jew would have seen or actualized the kingdom coming. And so there is much misunderstanding when we think about something like the eschatology of imminence. Some, for some of you, the first kinds of things that are coming to mind are those, none of us can name a title, but all of those strange books where they're predicting a second coming. Or some of you, what's coming to mind, uh, it's what comes to my mind, 
is um, a complex theology um, concerning the unfolding of some number of years, uh, hundreds of years or thousands of years, different um, different ages being ushered in and different um, judgments happening at different times. And so and some of you are thinking of terms like premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial and dispensation and, and many other terms besides. And so there's much there's much conversation that you can have around that if you like. I'm going to walk past all of it and instead focus on what I think would have been the primary focus of the ancient listeners to a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is something like this. The end of the age will be here In a sense, in, in, in the blink of an eye, there is, there is, and we'll talk, we'll flesh this out more, but there is this necessary imminence to the end of the age as we understand it. And for that reason, we need to think about our role in the kingdom of God in a different way. So whatever your particular views are concerning the theology of the end of the age or whatever your particular traditions are, um, whether you've held on to those um, or adopted new ones, I, I would like to turn our attention to the implications of this, of this imminence and what it, what it might mean. And, and the way that I think that's best done is through um, three brief meditations in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there is, it's one of a collection of parables of Jesus that is, that is clearly and rightly understood as one that emphasizes the abrupt end to this life and what follows, which is life in the age to come. Paul is useful in the way he establishes an eschatological pattern of a kingdom of God that in some ways is already present, mysteriously and and mystically present, but is not yet fulfilled, is not yet fully present. And I see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as, in part, an opportunity to think about this, this frame um, together, as well as as importantly, as well as its implications in the life of the Christ follower now. So, meditation one, sons and daughters of light. For this meditation, I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50. And I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does perishability inherit imperishability. Look, I tell you a mystery. Not all of us shall fall asleep, but all of us shall be changed. In an instant, in a glance of an eye, at the final trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable thing must clothe itself an imperishability, and this mortal thing must clothe itself in immortality. 
And when this perishable thing shall clothe itself in imperishability, and this mortal thing clothe itself in immortality, then will the saying that has been written come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Now death's sting is sin, and since power is the law, but thanks to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus the Anointed, so, my beloved brothers, become steadfast, immovable, ever abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is a picture of the kingdom of God imminent, the kingdom of God that is coming. But at once Paul also, in 1 Thessalonians 5, describes those who are in Christ as sons of light. We can understand and should understand ourselves as sons and daughters of light. And this is a very, very important phrase. And I and in this first meditation, I uh, again a short one that I would just like you to I would like you to ground yourself in this simple but profound truth. To be described as a son or daughter of light, this is a specific Semitic idiom, which indicates that you belong to a particular era. It's not just it's not merely Paul trying to he's not just writing an encouraging letter here. He is identifying it is an ontological status. He is identifying those who are in Christ through through this idiomatic phrase, he's identifying them as residents of a particular area, a particular and specific community, which exists within the already introduced eschatological era. In other words, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there's there's a fullness in a kingdom coming, while 1 Thessalonians 5 insists that the kingdom of God is somehow already mysteriously present and and growing among us. You, you are evidence of God's kingdom present now. You are living evidence, a living testimony to the reality that God's kingdom is already mysteriously working through the very world that we are living in. Paul identifies you as sons and daughters of light. Paul bestows this status upon you. Do you recognize it yourselves? And when you think about the the quality and the and, and the the contours of, of your faith in Christ, do you see this? this claim about who you are, do you see this as an expression of your faith in who Christ is? Because to glorify God and to honor him and to serve him well, we have to accept 
who he has made us to be. God is glorified when you understand your role as sons and daughters of light. And the kingdom is expressed when you see yourselves in a very, in a very real way as a, a community already living within it. Uh, a brief but useful treatment of this uh, can be found online in, in the short paper, An Eschatology of Certainty and, and Possibility. The first thing I would like you to meditate on, Meditation 1, You Are Sons and Daughters of Light. Take the time to read 1 Corinthians 15. Take the time to read and, and, and process 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Recognize that you know, our, our culture, we've been, so, we've been so inundated with empty language that is really merely attempting to make us feel good at any given moment that we have been inoculated against true wisdom coming from Christ, which, by the way, will make you feel good. I mean, it, it, it will catalyze, like it will, will activate something on an emotional register. But, but, it, but, but is, it's so much deeper than that. When you don't feel good, your status because you are in Christ, your status as sons and daughters of light remains, remains. When you are at your worst, when you are most lost and most exhausted, when you feel least, least useful to those you care about most in your life, This status that Paul offers is, it remains unchanging. So even if some of you have, for all kinds of reasons, found yourselves when hearing things like this, what, skeptical, what, I've heard that before, the reason I frame these as meditations is I'm aware it takes time to allow your heart, mind, to allow yourself to get back to this as something that is true. The more chaotic things are, the more demanding your situation and your current circumstance is, the more likely it is these essential truths um, get get lost or 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 sidelined somehow meditation 1 you are sons and daughters of light and 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 i hope you see how this is this um corresponds to an eschatology of imminence because how can the kingdom of god not be imminent when you are already members of it and you are here. Meditation two, urgency.
the reading I have for meditation too um, comes from um, well, what, one of the best best American authors of our time, Dave Eggers. If you've not had the opportunity to read a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, I recommend it highly. This uh, this text is from What Is the What, I'm an older older book of his. Meditation two, urgency. Edgar says, I cannot count the times I have cursed our lack of urgency. If I ever love again, I will not wait to love as best I can. We thought we were young and that there would be a time to love well sometime in the future. This is a terrible way to think. It is no way to live, to wait to love. More from Eggers here. There's nothing to be gained from passive observance. The simple documenting of conditions. Because at its core, it sets a bad example. Every time something is observed and not fixed, or when one has a chance to give in some way and does not, there is a lie being told. The same lie we all know by heart, but which needn't be reiterated. Talk about setting yourself up to fail. It's trying to say insightful words after quoting Eggers. Look, I mean, it's the eschatology is about the the end the end of an of a of an age for for everyone and the ushering in of a new age it is a it is a collective act um it affects us all but when when we think about the imminence of eschatology it is it's worth understanding that whether it's Christ's return or you leaving the planet, hopefully in a less painful way, not a more painful way, your ultimate demise is almost here. My ultimate demise is almost here. You could have 80 years in front of you still, and your ultimate demise is almost here. If we, if we do not meditate on urgency, we are missing the parable. We are missing the eschatology of imminence. Um, so I'm going to read directly from this this a summary of the work of uh, Professor Adrian uh, Bajan, and I, I I came across him some some time ago, but I've not. I must admit I've not read any like anything really of his other than he had he conducted um, kind of an interesting analysis of why it, it feels um, that time speeds up. Um, as we age, which I know that um, most of you are already certainly experiencing. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to quote directly. uh, This is uh, from Harvard uh, EDU. As we age, he argues, this is, this is summarizing Bajan. As we age, he argues, the size and complexity of the networks of neurons in our brains increases. Electrical signals must traverse greater distances, and thus single processing takes more time. Moreover, aging causes our nerves to accumulate damage that provides resistance to the flow of electric signals, further slowing processing time. Focusing on visual perception, Bajan posits that slower processing times result in us perceiving fewer frames per second. More actual time passes between the perception of each new mental image. This is what leads to time passing 
more rapidly, he argues. When we are young, when we are young, each second of actual time is packed with many more mental images, like a slow motion camera that captures thousands of images per second. Time appears to pass more slowly. Here's Bajan uh, quoted directly. People are often amazed at how much they remember from days that seemed to last forever in their youth. It's not that their experiences were much deeper or more meaningful. It's just that they were being processed in rapid fire. Whether or not this is peer-reviewed, whether or not his, um, his theory is, is fully supported is, is entirely irrelevant to me. We know it to be true experientially, don't we? We know that Lazarus is, is, at, is at the gate of the rich man. Not once, but, but has remained there. Allow this parable to provoke you to urgency. Meditate on, which seems, seems contradictory, to meditate on the importance of urgency, but... We, this, this is one of the most useful, necessary ways we can actually sustain ourselves in chaotic and challenging times is to understand what is true. First, that you are sons and daughters of light, but second, that there's an urgency to the work that you need to do. Eggers, I cannot count the times I have cursed our lack of urgency. You know, uh, Young, in, in discussing the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, says that uh, God determines the future. That's, that's, this, that's again, the, mis, the way we misapprehend um, eschatology. It's a, a, proper, a proper understanding of an eschatology of imminence doesn't focus our mind on the end of the world, it gives us a sense of urgency now because we know that whether or not it's the end of the age for everybody or whether, or whether it's the, or whether it's our end, we must know that it's rapidly approaching and we must bring a sense of urgency to each day of our lives. That is a defense. That kind of purpose is a tremendously useful defense against against the things that that seek to to bring us to a, to a death of a kind before before we're actually before we're actually buried, right? The things that like kind of like the death by paper cuts, the the things that drain us and slow us down, the things that that instill fear and apathy, urgency is a bulwark against that. Young says, God determines the future. People determine the present. God determines the, the future. People determine the present. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 forward. Here, here's Matthew 25. It will be immediately familiar to you. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. And all the nations will be assembled before him. Do you see, you're already seeing the eschatology of imminence here. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the kid goats. And he will set the sheep to his right 
and the kid goats to the left. Then the king will say to those to his right, Come, you blessed you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the cosmos. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Again, I, I have to I have to read those verses again. Then the king will say to those at his right, Come, you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Here's the age to come, right? Prepared for you, sons and daughters, from the foundation of the cosmos. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you gave me hospitality. Naked, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the just will answer him, saying, When did we see you hungry and fed you? Or thirsty and gave you drink. And when did you see, when did we see you a stranger and give you hospitality or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you ill or in prison and come to you? And in reply, the king will say to them, Amen, I tell you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The urgency that's represented in this passage, it has, it is, it has nothing to do with, with some idea of like us knowing what the end of the world is going to look like, us knowing um, when the end is going to come. This, as, uh, this kind of eschatology, this, this urgency, this urgency is about the alleviation of human suffering. We need, we should feel compelled to ask ourselves what in front of us is urgent and to act. Um, I'm thinking about even the last few weeks, and I need not be specific, but I mean, there are, there are stories in the last few weeks of, of people within our community who, said, who recognized that something was urgent and they acted. And people are better off because of that. I mean, there's the, you, the, you know, it's Luke chapter 12. There's a master standing and knocking at the door. There's a thief coming in the night. We have these parables that give us pictures of, of blessing as well as punishment. But we are... We are necessarily, we are compelled to have a sense of urgency as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. Understanding that our demise, whether it, whether it is, whether it is um, technically far away or very close, our demise will still be here in the blink of an eye. Meditate on urgency and act. Meditation one. You are sons and daughters of light. And our reading for meditation one was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Meditation two. Urgency. And our reading there, an excerpt from Dave Eggers. What is what? And meditation three is this, 
Let it go. Let it go. And our reading for Meditation 3 is um, a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. I don't know, like, like Wes, Wes Anderson is, is a gateway into like great films, and E.E. E. Cummings, I think, is some, some people's gateway into poetry. Um, a thousand years ago, probably, that, that was the case for me. So, E.E. Uh, e. Cummings, uh, Let It Go. Let it go. The smashed word broken, open vowel, or the oath cracked lengthwise. Let it go. It was sworn to go. Let them go. The truthful liars and the false fair friends and the bolts and neithers. You must let them go. They were born to go. Let all go. The big, small, middling, tall, bigger, really. The biggest and all things. Let all go, dear. So comes love. Our final meditation. Meditation three. Let it go. Um, so it's interesting, Paul's eschatology and eschatology that we see in this parable, this, this now, not yet, this already, not yet here concerning the kingdom of God. And, and Paul writes letters to the Corinthians, the churches in Corinth, and he also writes letters to um, the Thessalonians. And, it, and the contrast is, is useful. The Thessalonians... These were people who were, they were camped out. They were waiting. Uh, it was all about when, when is Christ going to come? When is this end of the age going to be ushered in by the return of their Messiah? And Paul reorients the Thessalonians. Re, again, read, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's telling them, you are, you are already sons of, and daughters of light, uh, again, to, to meditation one, an, an idiomatic phrase indicating the kingdom of God is not something only to sit around and wait for. Get, get to work now. Activate yourselves now. Begin to do good for those who are, are in need now. And Paul's message to the Corinthians is, is entirely different. In Corinth, it was entirely different. For the most part, for the most part, the the church in Corinth had abandoned the, 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 the not yet part of their eschatology of imminence. They, they, had, they, had, they were engaging in good work, but they had they, kind of stopped paying attention to the idea that this good work is not, these are not threads that are just going to be left, left hanging. The church in Corinth was was engaging in, in good work, but they had stopped they had stopped meditating on the reality that eventually God's full kingdom would come. And this this is 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 critical. Um, Paul says, for example, Paul says in First Corinthians six uh, verses two and three, do, do you not know that all saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? In other words, don't you know that you that you can let you can let you can do the good work that you have in front of you, Corinthians, and then you can let it go. When it seems to fall apart, 
You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to hold on to that. When you don't understand how the pieces are coming together, you can, you can actually, you can trust in the sovereignty of God and you don't have to burden yourselves with that. This is what I mean about this, this, I think, mishandling of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Those who go to this text and see it as something about, uh, they, they see it as an opportunity for us to to grab hold of more clues about heaven and hell. There, yes, it is about death and the afterlife. Yes, there's very real pictures of blessing and judgment. I'm, again, I'm not ignoring that. But the people who see it as one more data point to try to, through kind of intellectual acquisition control, right, their, their fate, are missing it entirely. Paul's message to the Corinthians, do good work now, alleviate the suffering of those most in need, because that is actually, you have met, in that moment, you have met the king. But you don't have to worry about how it all comes together. And when it doesn't seem to get, come together, you don't have to worry about that either. Because the eschatology, the picture of the, the now-not-yet kingdom that is being offered is one that allows us to trust. It allows us to trust that a sovereign God is putting the world back together. And if you don't, if you are someone who, and I, I think maybe in part because of my teaching in, in Center over the years, um, my my background was one, I, I, I imagine it was not unlike many of yours, where so much of the emphasis was on heaven and hell. And it, it was and remains very important to me to teach what I think the Bible teaches, which is that the emphasis is on the kingdom of God coming. But if you let go of the idea that there is more to come, then you'll, you'll feel, you will at once feel and then in some ways eventually be siloed. It will, you'll feel isolated. It will feel, in a sense, hopeless. And, and your most altruistic endeavors will sometimes be robbed of you'll be robbed of the joy that comes from those, and that is an important part of fueling that ongoing, lifelong sense of urgency so that you don't find yourself ignoring ignoring the person at your gate. If you don't remember there is more to come, if you forget that, that there's more to come, that there really will be an end to this age, and that God is putting all things right. If you, if you don't meditate on that and allow that to sink deep, deep into the core of your being, you will in fact abuse what is right in front of you. You'll weigh it wrongly. Again, you will weigh it wrongly. You won't, you won't overvalue it. It won't become more precious. But in fact, it will become less precious because you, you cling to it. 
too tightly, if we, if we can't remain open and grounded at once in the kingdom here and the kingdom to come, we'll find ourselves clinging to things too tightly. We'll misestimate them. And the, actually, really tragically, some of, the, some of the greatest joys in our lives will become burdens. You do not have to have everything put together for God to achieve exactly what he wants through your life. You do not have to have everything together for God to achieve exactly what he wants through your life. You don't become deadened to the needs of others overnight. It is most often an exhaustion that sets in, which leads to an overconsumption as, as a form of, of, of compensation and distraction. And your world gets smaller and smaller. You can do good and have a sense of urgency about it because you don't have to architect all of the outcomes of your work. It is something you can let go. Meditation one, you are sons and daughters of light. Meditation two, urgency. Meditation three, let it go. These are my reflections on an eschatology of imminence. And I hope you find them um, to, be, to be useful as well. Blessing Center Church, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.